Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for March 28th, 2019, the live from Washington, D.C. edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. To my far left, the man who puts the BS in CBS. CBS this morning, John Dickerson. Hello, John. And to John's right, but only on this stage, is the writer that every lawyer wants to be and the lawyer that every writer wants to be, New York Times Magazine, Emily Bazelon, and Yale Law School, Emily Bazelon. Hello, Emily. So we're gathered before a crowd in mourning here at the Lincoln Theater on historic U Street in my hometown of Washington, D.C., I noticed that many of you are clad in black. There are none of the, the Muller time t-shirts that everyone was wearing just a week ago. People are mourning the bar report on the Mueller report, mourning the latest attack on the Affordable Care Act, mourning the latest idea from Betsy DeVos and the Trump Department of Education to, to completely defund the Special Olympics, federal funding for the Special Olympics. But we are here uh, not to depress you, but to cheer you. And so tonight's GabFest, we will be talking about, first of all, the lessons of the Mueller investigation and how it's going to play in Washington for the next year. Then the moment that all of America has been waiting for, not the release of the full Mueller report, but Emily Bazelon's book, Charge, the movement to transform American prosecution and end mass incarceration. It is not out for two weeks, but we are going to sneak preview it tonight. And then we're going to be joined very fortuitously by Lauren Underwood, freshman Democrat from Illinois with a specialty in health care. And we're going to contemplate whether and how House Democrats can set a policy agenda that will make a difference and whether this latest attack on the Affordable Care Act is, is uh, the real deal. And of course, we will have cocktail chatter. So on Friday, April 12th, we're going to be in Charlottesville. That's part of the Tom Tom Festival, which is the big festival about small cities. And we're going to have a live show that you can get tickets to if you go to slate.com slash live. So I hope to see you in Charlottesville and many of our listeners at home in Charlottesville. So the bar letter on the Mueller report, we are four days past it. There are a million zillion questions still unanswered. No one outside of Barr and a few of his, his employees have seen the report. And they are, we are not likely to see it for a while, if at all. The president is taking victory laps. Republicans are vilifying journalists. Democrats are demoralized. Impeachment talk has been confined to the attic. But we still know remarkably little about what Robert Mueller found and what it means. So John, we've had a few days to digest. What most stands out to you so far about the report, Barr's report, and, and uh, the reaction to it? Right. So we're mostly talking about a summary of a report. So that, I think that's the first thing 
that we kind of need to keep talking about, which is we're really just talking about the summary. It's a letter. We're talking about a letter. We still don't even know how many pages there are. It's supposed is. to be hundreds of pages. I right. Well, but we I, don't have a total, right? No. Anyway. So, yeah. So what I'm th- the m- too fixated on two things. One is the specific not exonerated language. I'm fixated on it for two reasons. One, obviously, it well maybe three. I mean, the president says it was total, complete exoneration. That would seem to be something that's unavailable to him since the only sentence fragment we have from the actual report says not exonerated. (laughs) Nevertheless, why did um, Mueller put that in his report? And then more to the point, why did Barr, who could have left it out based on his decision tree that he made, um, particularly on the obstruction question, his argument being that you can't have obstruction if there's not an underlying uh, cause, underlying crime, I should say. And he sketched out what Mueller did. Evidence on the left, evidence on the right, left it up to us. We decided it wasn't going to be obstruction. Bob's your uncle. You're done. Why include that very specific language, not exonerated? So that interests me, one. I haven't really heard a good reason. Every time I ask somebody at the administration, they say, they repeat to me what Barr said he did about obstruction, which doesn't get at that very specific language. So that's the the first thing. And then the second thing is, in talking to lawyers about this, how much of the spaghetti sauce is mixed in with spaghetti in terms of what he can turn over? So is the report written in a way where it's threaded throughout is all of this material that you can't turn over? Or was Mueller purposeful and smart enough to know how to keep those two apart to make the turnover easier? Right. And given that we've had past reports, Leon Jaworski's report turned over, which had grand jury information in it, is this an excuse? Is this really what is delaying? Right? Because there's a political benefit in having this four-page letter exist without the underlying discussion. And that's why it's interesting. If that's the case, why put in the non-exonerated part? Because imagine if you could own the narrative for this period of time, own it without the not exonerated. Don't you think that Barr thought to himself, okay, that language is in there. It's supported by evidence. If I leave it out, then when eventually that becomes public, it's yeah. going to be really embarrassing and I'm going to look like a liar, not just like I spun this. I feel like that would have been too far a bridge for him to cross as a lawyer. So then we'll go walking down the speculative road a little bit more, which is then there's probably some stuff in there that's not, you know, that's big, that that would be super obvious. It's not negligible. Right, because one thing that's interesting in Barr's letter is he talks about the things that were not publicly known about obstruction. So since much of this played out in public, and we should get to that, that what used to be norms after Watergate, as Peter Baker wrote today, like firing your, getting rid of your attorney general, firing your FBI director, those norms are gone. But there's a lot that happened apparently behind that we don't know about that presumably is in the report. So, so Emily, do you, do, what do you make of this, uh, this question around obstruction, where there is this legal standard that Barr has outlined, which under which he declares the president is, is not available to be, to be uh, charged with obstruction or accused of obstruction. Is that a reasonable legal standard that Barr has outlined? Is it a common legal standard? Is it one that people generally agree on? I mean, the notion that if you don't have an underlying crime, it's harder to prove obstruction, that makes sense to me. Harder to prove doesn't mean you can't prove it. And prosecutors do sometimes bring obstruction charges without clear proof of an underlying can I, crime. Can I interrupt for one second? Yeah. Which is that there are underlying crimes. There's the Michael Cohen campaign finance crimes. They're crimes which aren't necessarily related Trump's to... Trump's crime. Ru- well, no, those, those could be Trump's crimes too. But they're crimes that aren't necessarily related to Russia, which Trump might still have been trying to 
obstruct yes. in order to prevent that investigation from going forward. That is a crime. Absolutely. And also you could um, choose to obstruct justice because you're trying to prevent other embarrassing information from coming out or investigations from happening, right? Um, I mean, this relates to me to this question of, well, why was there all this lying to the FBI? If there was no underlying shenanigans, why did people lie so much? And, you know, one reason is that there were other crimes that don't fit into this quite narrow definition of collusion, um, an actual agreement that uh, Mueller used, according to Barr. So that's one possibility. There's another is that you were trying to prevent other things from getting out that you were worried about, and perhaps you succeeded. And that seems like a reason that you would want to charge obstruction of justice. Um, you know, we also don't know whether Mueller imagined he was throwing all this to Congress. Although, if that was what he was doing, then the fact that Congress doesn't have the underlying report in its entirety or at the moment at all seems like a big problem. John, do you think we're going to get the report? Do you think the American public is going to see the report? I mean, you, you and I, all of us remember, and probably many of us in this room remember, when the Lewinsky report came out, that thing was out. I had read that whole thing within 15 minutes of it being released yeah. to, well, the, to the public. And the, here the we're, we could be waiting months to see a very heavily redacted version. I remember on that weekend, the Times, or maybe I'm conflating, but the Times printed the whole thing in the, in the newspaper. Um, I think we will get... The report. What does that mean? Does that mean 49% of the report? Does it mean 88% of the report, but not the good bits? Um, and what does it mean to be good bits? And then, you the know... The Lewinsky report, the good bits were really good. Um, <laughs> e. Um, Your definition is uh, uh, questionable here. Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, think, think about baseball. Um, <laughs> So, but but what interests me is the, so we're, it seems to me that the president landed somewhere between not exonerated and beyond a reasonable doubt on the obstruction question. Well, if the, if, if the way that this properly should be handled is in the political realm and in impeachment, you know, the standard for president should be something better than not exonerated, I mean, you know, not exonerated, right? And that's... I mean, and that's, uh, and particularly because I've spent the last two months in Philadelphia in 1787, um, and- Time uh, traveler. Thank you to our, right, thank you to the, the two whistle stop listeners out there. Um, but man, when you read them all day long, it, w it would be obvious what the response to this would be. That the standard, I mean, look at the guy who was sitting at the front of the room who didn't speak much, but George Washington was the model for the presidency throughout the whole four months. And the reason he was the model is because he had sublimated his self-interest twice in big, huge public ways. And so comparing that standard to the not exonerated standard is such a vast difference. And they created... They literally created impeachment for this kind of thing. Now, they also created a system in which if the people who are closest to the people in the House, um, you know, can't do it, and with the Senate, then, then that's fine. That's what the voters have chosen. But it seems to me, obviously, that's the, that's the issue, and who knows if it'll ever be brought up. David, since you reported so much on impeachment in the Clinton era, do you think as a country we're better off without impeachment proceedings, given how divided we are, given 
um, the, I suppose, relative ambiguity of this obstruction charge as a criminal matter, at least? I think we're better off without impeachment proceedings because it's clear because the country has become so partisan that impeachment could not succeed in removing the president from office. And therefore, even though, uh, even though he, in my mind, has clearly committed high crimes and misdemeanors and has behaved in unethical ways, not necessarily just in the Russia stuff, but in so many other ways. Um, but I just, I'm not sure that it is, it is productive because the legislative branch has abandoned its duties and the legislative branch is not behaving honorably. I mean, I, to me, it is like, like we have this situation where we have a Russian conspiracy to subvert an American election, a very successful one. We had a president who lied at every turn about what his connections with Russia were. He covered up business dealings. He had every associate of his was lying or com literally committing crimes around it. So he behaved unethically and immorally, if not criminally, clearly, and then has engaged in this extraordinary other variety of criminal activity or, or, or unethical activity involving emoluments, involving, you know, his, his highly corrupt cabinet and involving, you know, the, the hiding of his tax returns. And so, of course, he, he is, should be subject to impeachment. But in a political system that doesn't work, I'm not sure that we should do it because it, it, it will not advance the cause that anyone wants. It won't remove him from office, and it won't make it politically more likely that he will be removed from office by election. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I was always pretty skeptical of impeachment unless there was going to be some just incredible proof that was going to change the political um, meaning of it. And, you know, I think when you have a president that the country rejects, the country rejects that person at the ballot box. That's the method that until now, at least, we have seen as legitimate. There are no questions about it. And so, and there are lots of other reasons, obviously, to object to Donald Trump, um, whatever you think of uh, obstruction and Russia. I mean, yeah, I mean, the dangling of pardons, like the, all of this stuff right. is un, well, the firing of the FBI. I mean, it's everything is astonishing. Right. But then, right. Then when I get caught up in that and the threat to the rule of law and the idea that the president is subject to the rule of law. I mean, Peter Baker had an analysis in The New York Times today. Peter Baker, who's not usually sharp minded in these um, analytical pieces. No, that wasn't what I meant. Sharp. She, she meant. No, no. She. What she means is his analysis is sharp, but he doesn't take a strong position, a strong point of view that you would expect to read in like Slate, yes. as opposed to the New York Times, where you can't haul off and take a. Yes, he's calling the politics the way it is. I mean, I, anyway, that's how I read him. It was he used the word king on the front page of the New right. York Times today, and to ask the question: Is the president like the king? Have we lost all these constraints we had on the office since Watergate? Because it's clear that you can dangle pardons, you can lie. Um, you can fire FBI director, you can make all these moves, you can yell and scream about an investigation, you've busted through all these norms, and you can get away with it. One of the things that in the defense of, uh, that they have made about the obstruction question, which is basically saying the president has control over the executive branch, therefore he can fire exec people in the executive branch investigating him, and therefore there's no obstruction. Um, while that may technically be the case, when the founders talked about impeachment, which they did kind of rush at the end of the whole four months, they were just kind of worn out, and so that's why impeachment isn't too well defined. But, um, but they did 
very much they did very much have in mind if you give a president a certain set of tools it's not whether they can, the president can or can't use them in a certain instance it's whether in the instances in which he used them he was abusing the power that's the specific reason well one of the other specific reasons of the reason that, that, that they have impeachment so to make the case he could use these powers because they're all within the executive branch about which there is obviously some debate um, there's a, it doesn't get to the second question, which is, yes, but did he use them appropriately? Did he use them in the public interest, or did he use these tactics to protect himself? And that's contrary to the office as it was originally designed if we were still in that hot summer of 1787. And, I mean, it should be said, we're asking those questions about an attorney general who expressed utter skepticism about obstruction charges, um, especially of the kind you were just describing when he wrote this unsolicited memo last summer, which you know, got him the job and on some level. And that part of it's also pretty unsettling. Well, it does, people were saying, well, it only took him 48 hours to come to the conclusion that there was no obstruction. Based on his memo and his previous view of the executive branch and the president's authorities therein, I'm surprised it took him 45 seconds. <laughs> because, because that's his view. I mean... The bar was very high. Though yeah. we did say if you go around dangling pardons, that would count. So... Did you mean to make that pun? No, I didn't. There's so many puns that um, yeah. these names have lent do, themselves to. Do you, Emily, how can Democrats in the legislature proceed forward? What is it that they should, how can they proceed forward? It's clear that as, a, as an immediate uh, political matter, the bar summary of the Mueller report has benefited the president. Um, whether or not the full report would have the same effect, we don't know. But... In this period now, should Democrats just sort of abandon any form of investigation? Should they completely retreat off of it and move on to policy matters? Or are there tactical things they should still do, either for the benefit of the country or for the benefit of, of themselves politically, that would be helpful? I mean, they have to push hard for the release of this report, right? Because otherwise, this tactic of releasing this four-page letter could win the day and leave all of us in the dark about something really important. And yet, the cleverness of the letter is that it makes the politics of pushing for the report much less um, attractive, right? Because there's also, the Democrats need to move ahead and talk about other things, right. as we can discuss with Congresswoman Underwood when she gets here. Although this is interesting. I mean, the letter, there's the letter, and then there's, of course, been the White House framing of the letter, which is, again, Barr put in the not exonerated piece, but then the president in the White House has been saying total and complete exoneration, so that in order to create or try to create the field on which anybody who asks for any further inquiry related to this thing is beating a dead horse because it's all been determined beforehand. But we, uh, CBS has a poll out tonight that has a majority of both parties wanting the report to be released. So, um, right, you can count on people's natural curiosity, right? I mean, it seems outrageous. What do you? What do you guys think, though, about just as a tactical political matter, obviously the president has been celebrating this response, his, all of his aides have been as well. Do you think that's a wise thing to do, um, or a, given that there's other information that might come out, or is it a foolish thing to do? I, I'm so afraid to make judgments on the—Trump He Trump has sp proven to have such a gift for— for confounding me on these things. So it seems totally unwise. It seems unpresidential. It seems anti-American. It seems like undermining of the key institutions of, of the free press and, and um, but, but what the hell do I know? Right, but I mean, those are all like important 
worthy, legitimate, sober values. But from Trump's point of view, of course it's wise because you claim the short-term victory, you change the political picture, you scramble it. Some people will always think that you were fully exonerated. You get your base really excited. And if it ends up being wrong later, he's never paid a price for this kind of exaggeration and move, right? I mean, sure, he's unpopular. This may not help him very much, but the notion that like he's going to care if he has egg on his face, no, he cannot be shamed. Yeah. Do you think if he was caught beating a dead horse, it would, that would be problematic? (laughs) I don't think so. I I don't know. Do you, so one of the, one of the themes of, uh, one of the themes of this week has been the president and, and a lot of Republicans taking a victory lap over journalists and, and declaring, look how badly journalists handled this whole uh, investigation. Did we screw anything up? Is he right that, that the press has embarrassed itself and owes him an apology? Are there things that the, the press in general got wrong or is that a, is that a you know, just an opportunistic point by him to to beat at his favorite enemy yes because it can be both right so obviously he's going to use um uh because what he's trying to do with the press is what he did with the Mueller report and i think somewhat successfully which is try to delegitimize any criticism um and so this is an opportunity to front load and load in all kinds of a criticism uh, delegitimization of the press uh, because any other critical thing they write will then be seen in that stature of lowered authority. Having said that, you know, the endless coverage uh, and the breathless coverage is n- exactly what we're not supposed to do. We're supposed to keep things in context. We're supposed to be the calm ones. And there was a lot of not calm coverage. Having said that, also there is a lot of calling what we just do for, as our jobs as somehow having a bias or some, you know, I've talked about this before. I mean, we try and figure stuff out as best we can, and the people who consume what we produce should understand that. It's a provisional understanding by people with good intention to gather as much as they can to figure things out. And if anybody's ever been a part of a story uh, where people have reported on you, you know that, that reporters of, of goodwill and good heart can get it totally wrong because life is complicated and you can only sometimes have one portion of the elephant. It's not done out of malice. It's done out of the limited information you can have in any 24-hour period. There's a lot of defining what we do as based on malice, and that's a different category. But then there's just a lot of stuff that, you know, there's a lot of other stories to cover and, and a lot more breaths to be taken in between certain kind of coverage. So is the problem on a volume and then how speculative the coverage was? Because, look, a lot of people close to the president got indicted. I mean, yeah, they were sure. going to cover that. And, oh, by the way... The Russian Defense Intelligence Service and Russian troll farms interfered with an American election. Like, that's a huge story. story. And by the way, the president of the United States, of the things he is most concerned about and tweets about and spends the share of his energy and time, both privately and publicly, that amazing historical fact of the undermining of the American presidential system does not seem to be a primary concern in his day. Did you hear about his electoral college victory? Yeah. So that, that alone is all, A, totally true and should be a co- covered a lot. So I'm not, I'm not saying there's not important issues. Right. I mean, it seems to me, and this is always easy for me to say because I don't like cable television and I don't watch cable television, but it seems like if we were going to take an obvious shot, it's at the very speculative, um, you know, uh, like thinking of a meaner word, but people just like talking without 
having any real facts that they're tethered to, moving beyond the facts. No, (laughs) never. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. Today's Slate Plus segment is going to be a Q&A with our audience here at the Lincoln Theater in Washington, D.C. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member of Slate Plus today. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. John and I are so proud to introduce to the world Emily's latest and maybe most important work. Maybe. Never again. It's called Charge, the New Movement to Transform American Prosecution and End Mass Incarceration. The official publication date is in two weeks, right, Emily? April 9th. But Think of me on he- April 9th. <laughs> we are here to discuss it early. The book, as those of you lucky enough to have bought a copy and about to be having it signed or about to find out, it is a powerful argument about prosecutorial reform told through the real lives of two criminal defendants, Kevin, a Brooklyn teenager charged with possessing a gun that wasn't his, and Nora Jackson, a young Memphis woman charged with the murder of her mother. In both cases, we see the outsized role that prosecutors play in the criminal justice system and the way that they can be key to reform. So, Emily, first of all, congratulations. Thank Yay! you. Thank you. Thank you. There's a great image you have in your introduction, which is the idea of the pyramid of justice, and the judges are on the top, and then you have supporting the judges, prosecutors, and defense attorneys. They're the two bases of it. But that is a false image that we have, right? Yes. I'm um, looking forward to having a slide that moves. I've never had a slide that moves before, but I feel like this is a really good moment for a slide that moves it in our kind of our classic image of the criminal. Do you mean a slide that projects, or do no, you mean like a slide rule? No, the kind of slide where the rule. things move on the slide, right? Oh. Like in PowerPoint, you can oh, make things okay. move in the PowerPoint. Oh, okay. So imagine a triangle that David just described. The prosecutor and the defense lawyer are on an even playing field, and the judge is up here at the top of the pyramid, the neutral arbiter uh, making the decisions. But in the last 40 years, the judge has moved down and the prosecutor has moved up. 
right? So that would be if I had a slot. Sure, they I got would it, move okay. and the defense layer would stay in place effectively. And that's not how our system was designed. And it creates all kinds of strange incentives and results to have the person whose job it is to win convictions to also be a minister of justice. Yes, important. But who is often very bent on winning convictions have all the power. And we, when we made the changes that brought this about, it was largely because there was a crime wave. We got really worried about crime. The country passed lots of harsher sentences and in particular mandatory sentences. And once you have mandatory sentences, judges don't have discretion. Yes. It's not up to them. Well, the discretion has to go somewhere. It doesn't disappear. And it went to prosecutors. The charge they bring effectively determines the sentence that you receive. But we didn't talk about it that way in the 80s when we were making all these decisions. It wasn't like, oh, let's make prosecutors really powerful. It just sort of happened. And so it's been a kind of invisible feature of mass incarceration. And to the extent we did talk about it, people were happy, right? Because there was a crime wave and, oh, my God, throw them all in jail. Right. And to the extent that we were just increasing the prison population and having longer sentences, we thought that was great. And in the last few years, I mean, this isn't my finding that prosecutors have power. This came from research, um, a number of law professors, Angela Davis, who's here, William Stunts, John Pfaff, people showed quantitatively that this charging power has emerged as a factor in mass incarceration. And so for people who don't follow this, help them understand how many human beings, this isn't just about one case or another case, how many human beings go through this new decision tree that, that prosecutors are at the head of? I mean, we have 2.2 million people in jail and prison, and we have 10 to 12 million a year churning through jails with short stays. So yes, it's a crazy, crazy number of human beings who are caught up in the system. Um, and, and that, the 2.2 million figure is five times as high as it was in the 1970s. Well, so what... Uh, are the major consequences for individuals and for the country of prosecutors having accrued this power? What, what, how does it manifest itself in people's real lives? So when I was reporting in Brooklyn, I got really hooked on this gun court in Brooklyn. It was set up to prosecute gun possession. In New York, mandatory three and a half year sentence. If you have a loaded gun, doesn't matter. You never pointed it at anyone. You don't have a criminal record. That's how New York deals with gun possession. And I was in this court, and um, I was watching this guy named Zamir. He was a young guy. He didn't have a record. He, the gun had been found in his house. The cops got a tip. They came in. He was living with his grandmother in public housing. They found a gun. So, and months had passed since this arrest. And in the meantime, Zamir had been doing his best, based on his lawyer's advice, to make himself... Um, rehabilitated. He'd been going to a diversion program. He'd been taking pipe fitting classes. He was about to be licensed as a pipe fitter. And the judge was sympathetic. And so she said to the prosecutor, can we do something here? I don't want to send this guy to jail. She was begging the prosecutor to change the charge so she wouldn't have to lock this guy up. And the prosecutor said, no, like the facts of this case are such jail time is warranted. And that was it. He went to jail. And t talk about the incentives for the prosecutor to say that. Is it merely callousness? No, I think that um, 
there because it's about the baseline. So if you have a mandatory sentence of three and a half years and then you're looking at someone who might get no time at all, that seems like weakness on your part. It seems like you're doing something wrong. And that is something we can attribute to the state legislature who and actually the, those laws I'm talking about come from the Bloomberg era. Sorry, David. Um, <laughs> that in which Bloomberg got up at a press conference and said guns equal prison. Well, if guns equal prison, then Zamir has to go to jail. And if you're the prosecutor and you can do that, then how do you justify not doing it at all? So, Emily, a lot of your book is about sort of the counterweight to this, the movement for prosecutorial reform that has emerged in recent years. So can you tell us what, what is that movement? Where does it come from? And how did it emerge? So this movement, which is this building criminal justice reform movement has lots of origins. So one of them is the Black Lives Matter movement, which has galvanized so many voters, especially in cities, especially people of color, to see something wrong with the criminal justice system and feel like they want to do something about it. Then, right, powerful, important force. Um, then you have conservatives and libertarians getting quite concerned about the gazillion dollars we are throwing into incarceration and what's our return on investment when, you know, in some states, three quarters of the people we lock up get out and then cycle right. back through, right? So that realization that if you're thinking about an effective system, well, we're not, how, that doesn't seem successful. Yeah, it's like scratching poison ivy. We're cr scratching and it's getting worse. Yes, and then I would say that the third element especially in states where this has gotten a lot of attention, like Texas, exonerations, people getting lots of, you know, cases of terrible injustice where people spend decades in prison, they were innocent, they got out. And I don't know about you, but I see those stories and I imagine myself in those stories. They're not stories about people who committed crimes. They're stories about people who are dreadfully unfortunate. And I think those swirl of forces has lifted up this movement. And then the movement had a kind of realization 2015 2016 that you could take this power of prosecutors and harness it to change everything if they control so much of the system and if you elect someone you want to see in that office then suddenly all of this power becomes a vehicle for change and so who are the who are those people who's been elected and what what are they doing so you know there are a whole array of them across the country depending on how you count there are like between 20 and 40 of them. We could discuss whether there's kind of progressive prosecutor 1.0 and 2.0. But what they're doing right now, for the most part, are thinking about how to stop locking people up for nonviolent offenses. That's where they've sort of started, which makes sense. You're starting with the kind of low-hanging fruit. Um, so Rachel Rollins in Boston and Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, who my sister works with, I feel like I should all say that. Um, I wrote a lot about Eric Gonzalez in Brooklyn, not the kind of outsider model. He's a career prosecutor, um, but he's involved in this. Kim Fox in Chicago um, in some ways fits into it. St. Louis. There. And then if you broaden your definition somewhat and you look at people who are really improving their offices, even if they're not doing everything on the wish list, then you get into like 
cities in Texas and Jacksonville, Florida and Orlando. And you really can start making um, a longer list. These folks are um, talking to each other, trying to figure out what works, what's the best framing, how much runway do they have politically to do what they want. And they answer to a different constituency because the people who elected them are the people who were mad, not the people who want the same old thing. If of all the, the reforms that a reform-minded prosecutor can push through, what is the one thing, if you're, if you're uh, Eric Gonzalez in Brooklyn or you're, you're Kim Fox in Chicago, what's the, the one thing that does the most good most quickly and, and can be accomplished by a prosecutor? So you control charging, right? And so that means that in one moment, you can decide just not to prosecute a whole bunch of people, not even to get them into the system. Like some people benefit from treatment or programs, but some people just need to be left alone. What they did just isn't something we need to think of as criminal. Um, so one example of this are like, Traffic tickets, people go to jail for traffic tickets that are unpaid. And when you think about that, or you think about all the people who get arrested and in trouble for jumping turnstiles in cities that have subways, like when, when, we, when, when middle class people speed, right? They don't go to jail or prison. That's not what we do with that particular infraction. So why, why is that the answer? Anyway, that's one thing is to just decline um, a lot of prosecution. And and if, if I were a wily uh, defense attorney, I might see the, these reforms and find a way to take advantage of them for my clients. Are, they, are there defense attorneys who are doing that, who are maybe encouraging certain kinds of prosecutors who have not yet getting, gotten hip to this and saying, hey, you can be you know, this kind of reform-minded uh, prosecutor as well? Yeah, I mean, one of the questions here is whether the people, the frontline prosecutors, have enough discretion yeah. to do that. But I think there's no question. I mean, certainly I saw this in Brooklyn, that defense attorneys saw openings, and then they were, like, really taking it to the mat for clients. They felt like something was possible, the kind of offer that wouldn't have been before. And they were making, making arguments about public safety. So the main tactic that defense lawyers have, honestly, in this world is delay. Because the longer the case takes, the more time everyone is spending on it, and also the more time your client has to prove themselves, right? It's almost like in that, I mean, it can last and stretch out for a year or two. And if your client is getting a job and cleaning themselves up and doing well, it's much easier to make the argument that they don't need to go to jail. So, Emily, just going back to your turnstile jumping example, so much was made in the 90s of the, the kind of broken windows theory of policing and of prosecution, which is that you, you want to reduce the level of low level chaos in a city and that's going to overall make communities safer does that turn out to be bullshit yes that turns out to be basically bullshit so the the best proof of what i just said is in new york so when stop and frisk ended in new york which was the kind of culmination of the broken windows approach to policing you're talking about really nobody thought that crime wouldn't rise, right? Even the people who were like, this is a terrible injustice, which it was. There were all kinds of, you know, racial profiling and disproportionate policing of people of color, like bad, bad. Even the people who thought that was bad and worth ending thought, oh, you know what? There's going to be a bump. No, crime continued to decline in New York. Um, so I think we have pretty good evidence at this point that when we put policing resources into solving violent crime, like that's what brings down, um, right? That's, that's the most effective use of those resources. 
Um, unless David has another substantive question, tell me about the writing of the book, which is, you know, it's hard. John says actually he's writing a book right now. <laughs> Help me. I know. No. It is hard. But also each one, it's, it's like a child. I mean, they're all different in their own ways. So is, what's, what do we know about this child? Uh, well, I mean, you know, in some ways it's like, this, well, it's so... It's a redhead. It's a redhead. I know it's true. Let me tell you about redheads. Um, I think for me, the hardest part of writing a book is that you're doing it all by yourself. And no one's real. No one is as interested in it as you are. That like you subject your family to, you know, endless discussions (laughs) of it. Um, My children are saying, well, I don't really need to read your book because I know everything in it. And that is pretty much the case. Did you talk to Anne about this today? I didn't talk to Anne about this. Does she feel like she knows Well, I mean, oh my God, how interested could she possibly be in what's going on in Philadelphia in 1787? And yet... She feigned great interest in my book, which was really Well, that's because (laughs) your book might actually be interesting. But anyway, tell... So I found that part really hard. Um, I'm much happier when I'm in some kind of mode of collaboration and there's someone else there. But then you have these moments. I mean, for me, reporting is just like, you go back over and over again and people, usually if you really want a story that goes deep, it takes a long time for people to trust you. I was interviewing, I'm doing a podcast, like a mini series podcast for Slate related to my book. And I was interviewing someone yesterday I've known now for two and a half years. And he finally told me something. I felt like he finally trusted me. And it was just, that's very gratifying. And over the course of the years that you've been writing this and we've been having the podcast, there have been many Thursdays on which you've been like, oh my God, this person in the narrative is disappearing or they're never going to talk again or they're, I mean, you do not understand the grind and the tough and hard and on the ground work that went into this book. It's really amazing. It's really, (laughs) no, it's, it's, it's true. We were, we watched it every Thursday. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I confronted my limitations as like white mob journalists to write this book because the people I was interested in are people, this is not the main character who remains anonymous, but they're, you know, young black men who lived in parts of Brooklyn that some of which I'd never been to before. And like, I wanted them to answer a lot of questions and then hang out with me, which like, yeah, that's not, wasn't necessarily their first priority or interest in life. The book is charged, get a copy or seven. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Congresswoman Lauren Underwood serves Illinois' 14th congressional district. She joined the Congress this January. She is the first woman, the first person of color, the first millennial to represent her district in Congress. She's the youngest African-American woman to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives. She is a registered nurse. She was a senior advisor at the Department of Health and Human Services during the Obama presidency. Please give a great big GabFest welcome to Lauren Underwood. Hi. This is such a treat. 
Lauren, you have a, uh, a slate history, of course, because your sister yes. was a colleague of ours. That's right. And I was a Slate Plus subscriber. I have the mug, the original Slate Plus mug, uh, and a big fan of all wow. the uh, reporting. Excellent. Um, so welcome. Do you ever get confused for Clara Frank Underwood? Is that a problem, that your name is Underwood? <laughs> well, I can tell you that it was an impossible task to buy all of my domain names when I decided to run, <laughs> um, because Frank was in Congress. And so all of them were taken. I had to pay a lot of money to be able to buy <laughs> underwoodforcongress.com. <laughs> what television has done for you? Cost That's you right. a lot of domain name money. Yes. <laughs> So buy your domain names now. Yeah. And actually, huh. there's, so LaurenUnderwood.com, I don't own it. It's this woman named Sheila who sells hair weaves in Texas, and she won't sell it to me. And I'm like, <laughs> girl, hook me up. And then she, sold it, she sold it to some other guy. I think he lives in Tan Kansas. And I wrote him a note. Hi, I'm really Lauren Underwood. I really need this. I really will pay. Let's do some business. And no answer. Oh, man. That's so wait, what's on the page now if we went and visited it? LaurenUnderwood.com is a park domain. I know, right? So hook me up, you guys. You all know how to find me if you know this guy who owns my domain name. So, uh, Emily, can you explain what happened this week with the latest court challenge to the Affordable Care Act? Yes, I can do that. So a, um, a bunch of Republican attorneys general argued that um, because Congress, because there is no longer a tax, that the individual mandate is unconstitutional. And then a judge made a surprising ruling that that meant the entire Affordable Care Act had to fall, every single bit of it. Um, an unusual ruling because we have a, because <laughs> judges have a principle um, of reading legislation and thinking about when part of it can be severed from another part. So there's like a whole system for figuring out if one part of a law for some reason has to be struck down, how do you uphold the rest of it? This judicial ruling was really surprising, and what happened this week was that the Trump administration decided not to challenge that judge's ruling, um, even though if that ruling goes into effect, the entire Affordable Care Act would fall. So, Congresswoman Underwood, you come to us on a, in a week of extraordinary news, but That's notably right. news about the Affordable Care Act, and you, you're, as a politician, you've devoted a lot of your attention to health care. You worked on healthcare in the Obama administration, you are a nurse. What do you make of the Trump administration's decision to try to completely invalidate the Affordable Care Act? And what is Congress going to do about that? Well, obviously, President Trump can't take a hint. The American people spoke in force in November of 2018, saying that we want our health care. And, you know, Listen, he has a, a habit of trying to distract and trying to sow confusion, but I think that this goes beyond that, and I hope that the American people are not going to sit by and let them take away our health care coverage. We saved it once, we can save it again, and what we're doing in Congress is that we are acting on day one. On day one, when we were sworn in, we voted to defend the Affordable Care Act, when we had the Department of Justice who refused to do so, in an unprecedented move to not defend an existing law in the books, um, the House is going to do that work. Um, and we are now working to improve on the law 
So I'm really excited. Yesterday, I introduced a bill, H.R. 1868, which will um, allow more Americans to get access to the tax credits, which make premiums more affordable for those purchasing plans in the marketplace. It would allow 10 million people who currently do not qualify for tax credits because their income is just at that threshold to uh, be eligible for some additional help and making their premium price more affordable, and it covers an additional 9 million people. So no one's paying more than 8.5% of their income on health care premiums. But can I, so not to be a Debbie Downer here, but you're, you're a freshman Democrat. It's a divided Congress. The president will never sign that bill. Hmm. What, what, is it that, what is it that you can realistically accomplish as a, as a legislator? What can, what can the House do? Well, in this environment where, where it's going to be very difficult to get anything actually into law. In actuality, um, David, I just have to push back a little bit. Good. Because That's what I'm here for. Here's the deal. <laughs> Please. This bill, this bill is part of a package as the House Democrats are focusing on delivering for the people, which means that this bill will get marked up. This bill will get a floor vote. It will pass the House by an overwhelming margin. And I believe that the Senate will take it up. Because guess what? The senators all know that the American people clearly spoke in November saying that they wanted their health care. And that there are really common sense, good policy ideas to, to improve on the ACA that the Senate would, I think, welcome the opportunity to get a bipartisan win. Welcome it. And then, you know what? We get in this great veto override scenario, and I think on health care, we'll have the votes. This bill is clearly an effort to improve upon Obamacare, yes. right? So, and what do you think of this broader strategy, which seems to be Nancy Pelosi's strategy, um, rather than talk about replacing Obamacare and our entire private health insurance industry to build on what's here? At a moment when the presidential candidates running for the Democratic field are calling for much more dramatic change with Medicare for All or Medicare for America, these plans that would do far more um, as opposed to bol bolstering the exchanges. So let's just level set. We're talking about 20 million people who have coverage thanks to the Affordable Care Act. We're talking about millions of Americans, millions, who have pre-existing conditions who are now able to get health care coverage around the country thanks to the Affordable Care Act. We're talking about hundreds of millions of Americans who enjoy the benefits of preventive services, those free screenings, the free vaccines, contraceptive coverage, thanks to the Affordable Care Act. And those protections are under threat right now today because we have a Trump administration and an executive branch that is not willing to defend the law. So just like in the summer of 2017 when the Congress was trying to take away our health care, the American people spoke, right, and said, mm-mm, not today. And, and we were able to put some pressure on the Senate to save health care. The American people can rest comforted and assured that the House and the House Democrats are not going to let people take away our health care. And so I believe at its core, that is why. Also, I believe that we must be able to do both. Fix the system that we have now, make some needed improvements, and look towards expansion. So splitting two. So um, help us understand, there's the threat, which is just legal, right? That's the... The house well, I don't know what you mean by just legal. It is a, it is a very real concern. The right. Fifth Circuit, 
right. mean, is not even the circuit that you would even want something like this to come before generally. Sure. And so this is real, guys. Red alert. Yeah, yeah. But um, I guess my point is that there's, there's that, which is happening in the courts for the moment. And then yes. there's 1868, which you're trying to pass as affirmative legislation. Yes. So the piece of legislation you were talking about before that you think would pass in the, in the Senate and, get an, and, and be able to override a presidential veto, were you talking about 1868? Yes. Or, okay. And the other pieces. So that's just one bill in a right. suite of things. We have, um, as part of this uh, Affordable Care Act improvement um, so that we can lower health care prices for the American people, uh, something that would ban junk insurance plans. So these healthcare plans that aren't required to cover pre-existing conditions, aren't required to cover inpatient hospitalizations, aren't required to cover maternity care, things that would reinstate funding for the navigators, those people that would go into the community and help people sign up for healthcare coverage, uh, money to, uh, for reinsurance programs, which are like these risk adjustment programs, where if all the cancer patients ended up at insurance plan A and all the healthy 18-year-olds ended up at insurance plan B, that insurance plan A could be made whole so that they would continue to offer their plan on the marketplace, right? Competition. So is there legislation, though, if the legal process continues and the Affordable yeah. Care Act is eviscerated, is there legislation to rush in and repair? That's, I guess, what, well, that's what I'm wondering. How does that Not right again? now. So it's really important that we, um, that these types of improvements that we're making don't uh, adjust um, the underlying law because there's existing litigation. Right. But if that led you, I guess my question is if the litigation goes south mm -hmm. and the ACA disappears, what, what's the I think you should talk fix? to the speaker, but I can tell you this, that I'm not going to stand by and shrug my shoulders. Mm. That's, that's not why I'm here. I am a nurse. I've worked to improve and expand health care coverage in communities around our country throughout my career, and that is my life's mission. And so, you know, there may be challenges along the way, but we need to continue forward. I'm interested in the working environment on the House, we hear in the House, we hear so much and about how partisan Washington has become. I wonder, as a, as a lived experience now, you've been in the House for three months. Do you? I mean, do you have any Republican friends? Do, is there <laughs> is there a way? Do you do you feel any more hope about the yes. possibility of working together? Or are you, do you feel more despair? Do you feel the despair that I feel? It's a very partisan environment. I was surprised during orientation how few opportunities there were for us to get to know our Republican colleagues. They did not occur really while we were here in Washington. Uh, we had two opportunities out of town. We went to Harvard for a training, and then we went to Williamsburg, Virginia, uh, with the Library of Congress. And that was when we really had an opportunity to get to know our Republican colleagues. And there's some of them who are, you know, great people. I've had a chance to get to know Carol. Carol is the only newly elected Republican woman. And she's very cool. She grows bison. And, uh, and there's this guy, Denver Riggleman. He's from uh, somewhere in Virginia, like Southern Virginia. And his wife owns a distillery. And Denver loves the spirits, okay? And Denver can throw a good party. And uh, he's a nice guy. Um, and so, you know, my neighbor to the north is Brian Style. He uh, replaced Paul Ryan. Um, and, right, but he's, he's a Republican uh, who replaced Paul Ryan. And he's a millennial. And so we've been getting to know each other around issues that impact our generation, right? So there's opportunities to get to know our colleagues and hopefully identify ways to work together. That being said, I'm in the market for a Republican bestie. And so, you know, I'm hoping that we can identify that person so we can really get to work uh, for the people. 
The, it, also in that, in that vein, I'm, I mean, I'm going to say the name Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Just say the name there. But Just say there's, the name. Bi- there's so much... Click, ex- click, 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 click. Right. <laughs> there's so much... Ex- you just like bummed, like, why am I not getting all that attention? No, no, uh, no. Um, no, no, wait. It is not a competition. Can we just address this real quick? I am not a foil for Alexandria. We are not going to tolerate this kind of positioning. Not that you did it, but I think others in the media do. I, my question was actually, there's so much excitement about the young women Democrats in Congress. What, what it, where does that go? What do you guys do with that? I mean, there's What this, do we do? We change yeah. the world. And how amazing is it that it is um, a cohort of young women that are dominating the news every day. That's awesome. Young women of color who have great ideas, who are competent, who are smart, and um, who are focused on achieving goals in really distinct areas. And so I'm really excited to be able to work with all my colleagues in the house. Tell us about your um, district, because didn't, didn't it go for Obama in 08 and then Romney and then it Trump? It so it was a Republican district, Hastert, Joe Cannon. This is an incredibly historic district. So what is that like? So our community birthed a Speaker of the House, Denny Hastert, the longest serving Republican speaker ever. Um, And then they voted for Barack Obama. And then when Denny Hastert left the Congress... The longest um, serving in prison, isn't he? Well, you know... (laughs) um, (laughs) They (laughs) elect... Yeah, that's true. And... um, (laughs) And, you know, we are a purple community, half suburban, half rural. Uh, the district's 80% white. It's 2.9% black. It is 10% Latino. And the rest is Indian and Pakistani, Asian, you know, Indian, Pakistani. And um, it's an incredible place. You know, a lot of people didn't think that we had a chance when I decided to run. They were like, especially folks at home, this is who I'm talking about. They were like, you know, these people in D.C. seem to think that the 14th is going to flip. Good luck. And um, we weren't really taken seriously. But I always knew that we deserve better. And we, this election was about two things. It was about health care as the number one issue, and it was about representation. Did the guy in the seat have our back in Washington, and was he gonna show up for us at home? And the answer was no. What, um, what do you miss about being a nurse? I bet you were a good nurse. Oh, thank you. And, I'm, and obviously you were seeing patients. Your day must have just been totally different than it is So now. I'm a public health nurse, which means that my practice area are communities and populations. One of the things that I was so surprised by um, in the time that I was running was how similar the skill set is, meaning that in nursing school, we had to learn how to walk into a patient's room because you would only have maybe three, four minutes to be able to establish trust, look into their eyes and let them know that the advice that we're giving is our best professional judgment and that we are trying to help them recover and get well and live their best lives, right? And I would do that every day on the campaign trail, right? People would come and they would share their vulnerabilities, their insecurities, um, and they would be asking for help. And they hoped their congresswoman or their congressman would be able to help them, right? Like, that is a really almost intimate exchange um, when people are that vulnerable. And you have to look into their eyes and relate human to human. And um, I appreciate uh, and I really enjoy that aspect of this job that I draw on from my experience as a nurse. Do you, so we've talked a lot about the Mueller report tonight b- before you came. Do you, do you think that you and your Democratic colleagues 
should how much how much of your uh, energy and weight should go towards the investigations of the president and how much should go towards uh, 1868 and and other policy measures yeah so I mean here's the deal no one at home asked me about the Mueller report they don't they have not I mean that's just like not the topic of conversation I can't go anywhere in the Illinois 14th and not talk about health care I mean, that is what folks want to talk about. Prescription drug prices are too high. Premium prices are too high. When are we going to fix our healthcare system? Um, the Mueller report is something that, listen, I think it's really important for our democracy that we see the full text of the report. And we have called for that publicly. We have demanded it. You know, the chairman sent a letter. We're hoping to hear back by next week on the 2nd. And it's critically important, right? No one asked to see the bar summary. We want to see the Mueller report. And like... <laughs> Let's just move on, right? The president said he's cool with it, so let's just do it already, right? But in terms of effort, my focus is on making sure that we can do what we promise, which is lower health care prices. And I have been focusing on that every day since I've been here. It's been two and a half months, and we're, we're going to get it done. Is that the short version of how you make build a bridge between Democrats and Republicans, you get those Republicans maybe in the Senate, you know, is Lamar Alexander and Susan Collins, is the bridge to them lowering health care prices? Because it's not expanding coverage, maybe. You know, here's the thing. I think that folks just need to do their jobs. And like, this whole idea that Mitch McConnell is going to unilaterally decide to not take up bills is something that I just, you know... I really struggle with that. And he so is up in 2020. Senators. <laughs> He's up in 2020. And so, like, you know, those good folks in Kentucky, I think, can assess, you know, his productivity along with every other member that they get to vote on. So, totally. But he didn't let, he didn't let uh, Alexander Murray come up. Um, Collins Nelson, he's not letting come up. He may not run again in 2020, especially if somebody retires from the court and he can get another conservative on the court just to make your nightmares you, worse. Is that a real um, thing? People talk about it. Really? Now, I'm just saying, people talk about a lot of things. But, but I guess my point is, you, what you identified, the pressure point on him, what if that's removed? I'm just wondering uh -huh. what what's the... How do you build the, the, the bridge both to, to your Republican colleagues and then also that public pressure? I think a few things. One, we have to demand that the Senate act. We have to demand it. And I think that a lot of people around the country have, you know, sort of kicked back a little bit since the election and said, hey, we did it. We flipped the House. We've done our part. Um, and, you know, in my community, I've seen a lot of people say, you know, oh, I'm so glad Lauren's there. She shares my values. And they go back to their regular lives, right? And, and regular life is important. And um, I'm going to hold it down here. But we need our backup. And we need folks to continue to be engaged. And um, the agenda can't move forward if we don't have the folks mobilized to push it along. What's the, um, what's the nicest surprise been since you've been The nicest? Here? Yeah. Um, well, there's been so many surprises. I mean, I got to tell you, Congress is a wild place. It's like totally a trip, you guys. And like, <laughs> honestly, 
I am surprised at every stage. You know, I'm surprised by the number of people who, you know, are not as familiar with the legislation that they vote on every day. That's not a nice surprise. That's it's just like a surprise. Um, so I'm great. surprised by, you know, the amount of information that's conveyed on paper. This is like not a uh, electronic communication organization. Um, but I really enjoy the opportunity to meet with people um, and the stories that they come in and share in my office. It is like incredible. People come and they've never been to Washington before and or they've been to Washington but never decided to come to Congress, but they wanted to come and they wanted to meet me and they wanted to share whatever was on their mind. And it's like this just genuine, enthusiastic interaction. And then they have such hope in their eyes. Like, won't you just fix this or help me? Or can't you just make this change? Or my favorite is, won't you just do something? Mm -hmm. And... <laughs> and um, it, it's really sweet. And I hope to make them proud. Congresswoman Lauren Underwood <laughs> Illinois, thanks for joining us, Lauren. Come back anytime. Oh, thank you guys so much. Appreciate it. So let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily, when you were, when you were on book tour, sitting in a hotel bar, <laughs> exhausted, but you have to strike up a conversation with a stranger to oh flog God, your poor book. Poor stranger. Listen to <laughs> what that. are you going to chatter about? Gerrymandering? Yeah. Um, the Supreme Court <laughs> heard argument this week in two gerrymandering cases. One in which the Republicans made sure that ten uh, that the delegation from North Carolina in Congress would be ten to three, and the second case, Democrats in Maryland um, established an eight to one congressional delegation. Neither is like a particularly natural outcome in these states; they're kind of perfectly paired. And this is this giant question that the Supreme Court left open when Justice Kennedy retired. The question is. Can courts ever intervene to stop extreme partisan gerrymandering? We have lots of law about gerrymandering by race. That's not allowed under the Voting Rights Act. But what if you're just dividing up voters for partisan advantage? Is that a problem under the Constitution? The Supreme Court has never struck down a map because it's partisan gerrymandered. Um, and I think never will, or at least I did not hear anything at this argument that suggested that the court would open the door. There were a couple of noises. Justice Kavanaugh talked about extreme gerrymandering as a problem, and Chief Justice Roberts brought up the problem of, of whether the First Amendment is in play here because you're discriminating, you're treating people differently based on their political viewpoint. And so could that be um, a problem under the First Amendment? The Supreme Court loves the First Amendment. So I guess there's like a crack in the door. But what seemed to me the most important moment in argument was that Justice Kavanaugh um, also said that there were other ways to address gerrymandering. State Supreme Courts could call on their state constitutions. Voters can pass um, nonpartisan commissions that can draw the lines and the maps instead of state legislatures. And those are perfectly good remedies, except 
that the Supreme Court just barely allowed a nonpartisan commission passed by voters in Arizona by ballot initiative to remain law. It was a 5-4 decision, Justice Kennedy plus the liberals. Um, Chief Justice Roberts at the time wrote this very impassioned dissent, arguing that it's only state lawmakers, not voters through a ballot initiative, that can pass this kind of commission. Well, it's not really in the interest of the party that's in power to give up its ability to draw the lines on these maps. So that seems like a really significant um, potential crack in the structure of this these other remedies argument. And of course, Justice Kavanaugh is now positioned to be the fifth vote to potentially overturn that decision about Arizona. So anyway, we'll have to see. But um, if you think that there should be limits to partisan gerrymandering, the Supreme Court may have missed its chance. John, what is your chatter? You want me to go second? It's a little involved. You want me to go second? I'll go second. No, sure. you, uh, you... I think I'll if go John's s- offering to close it out, you should yeah. take it. All right. Well, I'll, yeah, I'll do, I'll do mine. So actually, I'll start with our listener chatter. So we uh, take your ideas for cocktail chatter. You can tweet them to us at at Slate Gabfest, something that you are going to be chattering about at your cocktail party. And um, from Darla Cashian at at Bossy Magoo, <laughs> Darla sent this dismal story about Matt Bevan, who's the, the uh, governor of Kentucky, and he doesn't believe in the chickenpox vaccine, so he takes his, took his nine kids to a chickenpox party instead and got them chickenpox that way. And he's sort of hearkening back to certainly my childhood. I think I, think I, I should ask my parents. I think that we, they exposed me to chickenpox because it was in the pre-vaccine era. Um, and it's, you know, that's old-timey. It's nice. Like, to do it old-timey way, but as everyone knows, the CDC advises against this, and it's there are some deaths from chickenpox. Because um, if you get it when you're older, it's serious. You can turn into shingles, right? Yeah, and also kids who get it. Really? Kids can get it and die or have serious illnesses, and and so I mean, I think you know, fortunately, non- nothing untoward happened to Matt Bevan, Matt Bevan's children, but it's not a wise thing to do, and it's very disappointing that you have this anti-vaxxer behavior from a, a governor. My chatter is about Endel. Endel was signed, latest artist signed to a big distribution deal by Warner Music. 20 albums coming in the coming year. I think we're going to listen to some Endel. Is Endel the hip-hop star from Delaware? Is Endel the latest Swedish DJ? Is Endel a Scottish boy band? No, Endel is an algorithm that creates ambient mood music based on your, you know, like what the weather is and your heartbeat and has now released a bunch of albums on Spotify and is going to release a bunch more of albums on Spotify. And it's frankly terrifying <laughs> to know that, that music is, is the latest thing that's going to be conquered by the robots. Let's listen to some Mendel. This is called One Gentle Haze from Sleepy Foggy Morning. I didn't love that. I didn't feel like that was replacing all music. Yeah, it felt like the music they play when every spaceship arrives for the first time. Yeah. Well, that's what, what, isn't that what the robot that's would do? Right. The robot's like, yeah, that's, that's, this is the future, man. But I think we can, there's, a, there's already a robot newscaster in China, an AI newscaster, and I think we can look forward to the, the robot novelists that are going to write 
they're going to, I'm sure they're going to be trashy novels written soon by AI, by algorithms. But not highbrow narrative nonfiction. <laughs> Sorry, I, I think or there's going to, middle brow. there's going to be a, the, the book, the AI that's writing a book on prosecutorial reform. <laughs> it did they'll it for, do it so much faster. Yeah, they don't, they're also going to take that big advance. Anyway, uh, so listen to some Endel on Spotify if you're in the mood. John, what is your chatter? It's the end-all, be-all. He's out there cooking that up for, like, minutes. I'll show myself out. (laughs) Okay, so since tonight is in part in celebration of Emily Bazelon, my chatter is about a woman named Anne Royal. Since Anne Royal was the first journalist, woman journalist in Washington, and since uh, Emily is my favorite journalist, I am going to tell the story of Anne Royal. Um... It, now, uh, about Anne Royal, it was said that she was, th- these are not things that are said about Emily, she was a holy terror and an e- evil, detestable public woman. Holy now, terror was okay. Right. Maybe not detestable. Like you, she grew up in Pennsylvania, but she grew up in the backwoods of Pennsylvania. Oh, she, was, uh, she was abducted by Indians. She was abandoned by her family and abandoned by her government. Um, her okay, greatest, so yes. She came by her holy terror, uh, she, honestly. honestly. Well, exactly. No. Wait, what year was she born? Uh, oh, let's see. Roughly. She died in 1854. She was born in 1780 something. Um, the first way I came to know Anne Royal is she was the first woman to ever interview a president. John Quincy Adams was supposedly skinny dipping in the Potomac. And Anne Royal sat upon his clothing and said she would interview him until, uh, or, or that he must answer her questions or she wouldn't let him have his clothing back. That is such a great tactic. Yeah. Good for her. This may or may not have been used by Emily Bazelon. Clinton tried that. Um, now, if you've ever seen a picture of John Quincy Adams, um, and there is, I think Quincy, John Quincy Adams is the first president who was ever photographed because he lived a long, um, productive life as a member of the House. He looks like he's still irritated that this happened. Um, there was no Secret Service at the time. Now, that story is almost in, undoubtedly untrue. Um, but it was told about her, and we'll get to the reason why. But here's a headline about her in 1950, or 1854. She was a holy terror. Her pen was as venomous as a rattlesnake's fangs, made life a burden to the public men of her day. So that was written in 1854. But she... <laughs> applause there for making life hell for men. Um, well, then it gets better. Um, that was written in 1954 when she died, but she did a number of things before she died, including living. Um, so the first thing she did was she married a revolutionary uh, war soldier who was considerably older than she was. He dies. She wants to get his pension. His family says no. So she has to turn to writing. Uh, and like most writings, uh, like most writers, that meant financial hardship because in the 19th century, women couldn't go into television to make more money because it was, it was male-dominated at the time. So... <laughs> She wrote about the daily lives of people in this emerging country, and she was, and this is true, she coined the term redneck. Associate redneckness was associated with kind of low-class religion, so it always seemed to have a, a class slur associated with it, but anyway, it had to do it first, as she wrote about it, with North Carolina um, Presbyterians. So, huh. um, <laughs> is that a woo for North Carolina Presbyterians or against them? For them. For them. Okay. Good. Well, I'm married to a Tennessee Presbyterian, so I'm sure they have something in, 
in common. Anyway, I came across Anne Royal because she's one of a class of Jackson-era pre-Civil War female writers, Mary Clemmer Ames, um, Margaret Baynard Smith, this class of pre-Civil War women writers. She moved to Washington to try to argue for her husband's pension to Congress. She published a paper called Paul Pry. It was described thusly, a newspaper dedicated to exposing all and every species of political evil and religious fraud without fear or affection. Paul Pry was named after an orphan. Now, why did she care about orphans? Well, because she used orphans to set the type on her newspaper. Okay, that's not so great. <laughs> Child labor job. Well, she I invented think unpaid internships. No. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest contribution to media. Exactly. Who among us has not benefited from an unpaid internship? Um, but it meant her newspaper sort of looked like broken teeth because they couldn't quite set the... the um, now, she did what was considered woman's work at the time, which apparently meant having a conscience. Uh, she wrote about public lynching, and the public lynching of a black woman, she wrote this. Who is, who is said to have a soul at all who can calmly stand by and view the struggles of a fellow mortal in the pangs of such an exit? So she wrote about things that people at the time didn't want her to write about, and one of them was the most degrading and evil things that Americans can think to, to do with their day. Almost every disclosure of government that she talked about, she wrote about because she said the money could go to widows and orphans. Her obituaries described her this way, that she was remembered for the blowing up she gave everybody and everything. She was such a agitator that the U.S. government, this is where, again, it comes back to Emily, in a case called United States versus Anne Royal, tried to dunk her in the Potomac River. <laughs> huh, that yeah. comes back to me. Well, no, it's a court case. What's happening it's later? It's a court case. I see, I yeah. see. Now, they were going to dunk her in the Potomac River, but they called it ducking, as in Mallard, not dunking, as in LeBron. Um, she lived next to a fire station, and at the fire station they were having, those damn Presbyterians, a Presbyterian church meeting. And she could hear the sermons, and she thought this was a conflation of church and state. One Presbyterian complained that she yelled at him out the window. She was apparently fond of expletives. She called him a damned old bald-headed son of a bitch. She, she was then arrested and accused of being an evil, disposed person and a common, and this is important, a common scold and a disturber of the peace and happiness of her quiet and honest neighbors. So being a common scold was an English charge, always leveled at women, and it was basically if you're a woman and you're a nuisance. It was and an actual criminal charge Criminal charge. common scold. Common scold, yes. Wow. Um, and in fact, what the book, a book, one of the books written about her is called A Common Scold. All right, we're getting towards the end here. Um, <laughs> But why is this important? Because this is during the Second Great Awakening. So religious men thought the route into more, filling the pews up with more people was going to be through the women. So convince the women that everybody in the family needed to be religious and you keep the churches filled. If you have a woman writing about how these men are all scoundrels, that's not good for business. So they take her into court. She is convicted. And when she's convicted, she's convicted to this ducking in the, um, in the Potomac River. The judge in this case, however, prosecutors did not have the power they have today, and the judge decided that it was medieval to duck somebody in the water. 24 years later, she dies, but in 1906... So wait, no ducking? No ducking. Dunking? No okay. ducking and no dunking because the judge decided it was too medieval, and the story ends nicely. In 1906, she was portrayed as, quote, the policewoman of truth. 
whose newspaper with fiery truthfulness and knife-like probings of the public and private affairs of men and women sought out corruption in government and paved the way for other women in journalism. That's our show for today. The Political Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Audio. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of audio. Kirsten Naeem and Faith Smith produced this live show at the Lincoln Theater. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest and tweet chatter at us for Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson. I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Washington, D.C. Hi, Slate Plus. I'm interested in what you think happens next with the ACA. You know, now that it's survived the challenges in NFIB and Helbig and Hobby Lobby, I mean, what's next after the DOJ opinion? Right. Well, so we should make clear the Justice Department can withdraw from the suit and other folk can defend the suit. So it's not as if that means that automatically this judge's ruling becomes the final word. There will be appeals. And you know, when this judge made his ruling, law professors across the political spectrum denounced it as like crazy. It just didn't seem like it was tethered in any way to all the rules about when you sever provisions and when you strike an entire law down. So I don't think that ruling will be upheld. But as we know, um, you know, other challenges to the Affordable Care Act that seemed way out there wound up with, you know, three or four votes on the Supreme Court. Um, So I, you know, we'll have to watch and see. And and already a couple of the justices, I think it's Alito and Thomas, have expressed some um, sympathy for this view. So not going to get zero votes. I'm Drew Clark, and my question is for Emily. You talked a lot about prosecutorial discretion and how that's kind of ballooned with the limiting of judges' discretion, but it seems to me there's, a, there's one or at least or even two more fundamental issues, and one is just how we get rid of these three strikes and you're out types of laws. Are those mostly federal or state? How do we address that? And also, could you just address the role of drug laws and how crazy they've gotten, and should, should Congress be more focused on scaling back penalties for, you know, marijuana and other minor crime uses uh, or, or the, the three strikes laws or, or, or these prosecutorial things that you focused on? So most of the three strikes laws that remain in effect are state laws. Um, some of them have been reformed or even struck down. California in a ballot initiative um, pulled back on its three strikes law. In general, I think one answer to how do we ratchet down from these harsh sentencing laws... That's just a preview. To hear the rest, please go to slate.com slash plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., 
on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.